Hello and welcome to another episode of Painting the Corners. And we are going to wrap up the winter meetings for you, give you all the details about what went down in San Diego. The first winter meetings held in three years because last year we had the lockout. The year before that was the pandemic. But the year before that, we were back in San Diego for um, one of the biggest winter meetings in recent memory. That was where Steven Strasberg, Garrett Cole, Anthony Rendon all signed. Uh, that was a huge winter meetings. And we were back in San Diego again this year. And man, this one topped that winter meetings. Sure seems like uh, over a billion dollars spent on free agents. There was deals from early on Monday to super late last night. So that's certainly a big storyline is just how much money that these owners are spending after several off seasons, at least two of um, really miserly spending and uh, and cost cutting ways. It looks like uh, the, the front offices are, are ready to spend, and that's great, obviously, for our game of baseball. We can talk about the trends of uh, players being paid later into their careers and lower AAV deals, uh, the luxury tax and all that stuff. But uh, first of all, let's just get into what actually happened at the Manchester Grand Hyatt in San Diego this week. Yeah, I don't know why they don't just do the winter meetings in San Diego every single year. The weather there is perfect. I'm sure the front offices of all 30 teams wouldn't complain about that, and I know we certainly wouldn't either. But yeah, let's kind of kick it off. And given that, there was a huge splash to start this winter meetings off, and that was Justin Berlander heading over to New York and that of the Mets on a two-year, $86 million deal plus a vesting option for that third year, which I believe is him throwing 140 innings in year 2024, which yes. will automatically turn that vested year into a guaranteed year. So the Mets could be on the book for a three-year, what would that be, $121 million deal, I think it is, after the vesting option gets put into place. So that was kind of a shock, but not really once the ground was off the book. Yeah, no, it's uh, you knew they were going to go after him hard. We we talked about this at the end of the uh, last episode when Degrom signed with the Rangers. You know the Mets were immediately turning to Verlander and to a lesser extent Rodon, um, and they got it done. It was kind of a can't miss situation for the Mets, and you know if they're in that situation, they've got deeper pockets than anybody. Um, we'll talk about some other moves they made, but their payroll is now creeping up well over $300 million. Their tax number is going to be something insane. But obviously, it's all about you know just keeping that same level of production, and there's really only one guy that's matched DeGrom in production in the last few years, and that would be Verlander. Yeah, it's also difficult to not see the downside here, which is your two mainstays in rotation, Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander making the ridiculously high AAV. Both of them lead Major League Baseball currently and all-time in AAV. They're tied up for the next two years, guaranteed, and they're both getting up there in age, especially Justin. He's going to be playing 
through age 40 to 42 season, and Scherzer, I believe, is in the upper 30s at this point. There's obviously concern about decline as well as injury concern. You know, even if they're able to maintain their success or even part of it, I'm sure these contracts are worth it. But you have to at least have in the back of your mind the possibility that both these guys could have some random injuries just because of their age. No, absolutely. And um, that is a huge concern. But at the same time, this is the beginning of the trend that we saw through really this whole offseason, but into the winter meetings especially. If you want the star players, you're going to have to probably overpay a little bit. And you're going to have to give a little more than your analytics and your algorithm says that this player is really worth because everybody's got money to burn. Well, not everybody, but lots of clubs have money to burn coming out of the pandemic, uh, coming out of the lockout. Their revenues are rebounding. They had a full season with fans this year. So everybody's looking to spend. The market prices are being driven way up and if you're not comfortable giving out that little extra you're not going to land anybody and that's what we saw yeah and it'll become more and more evident as we continue to talk about these deals exactly what you just said the premium for this talent is like like we've never seen before and yes some of the deals it's in the aav attached to it but man we have seen more length and paying guys into their late 30s, even early 40s, than we've ever seen. And like you said, those algorithms are being thrown out the door, which may continue to separate those teams who have big payrolls from those who choose to not have big payrolls. I I say choose because it's a choice. All these guys are billionaires and could easily afford to do at least a significant amount more than what they're doing. But yeah, these big payroll teams who are committed to winning... It's really good for the game. It really, really is. And another one of those teams is that of the Philadelphia Phillies coming off their World Series loss. They're committed to repeating their trip back to the World Series in an effort to have a different outcome. They went out and they signed Trey Turner, a 29-year-old player, to an 11-year, $300 million contract. Simply unbelievable, given that that'll be paying him until his age 40 season. And... Not only is he going to be paid until his age 40 season, but so is Bryce Harper. They're going to be playing together through ages 38 to 40 on massive contracts. Yeah, and really this is the only deal that we've seen, at least up until this point in the winter meetings on Tuesday, that really models after that Harper deal. The Harper deal was, hey, you know, Harper and his agent, Scott Boris, said, we want to hit $330 million, which at the time was a record for a free agent contract. And the Phillies said, done, let's stretch it out over a really long term, no opt-outs, full no trade, you're just going to be a Philly for life. Um, we stretch it out a little bit longer, 13 years, and that'll kind of deaden the AAV, lower it a little bit, so we can build around you and we're not so hamstrung. It's exactly the same thing they did with Turner. All 11 years, full no-trade clause, no opt-outs. He's going to retire a Philly. Uh, There's pretty much no question about it unless he gets traded to somewhere that he wants to be traded to, but um, not really looking likely, especially because of how much he wanted to go to Philly and how how, uh, outspoken he was about the fact that he 
and his wife wanted to be on the East Coast. So it's an interesting style of deal, especially because after the Pujols contract, the Miguel Cabrera contract, teams had really shied away from giving players guaranteed money into their late 30s. Um, you're seeing it again with the like Anthony Rendon deal, as I talked about at last winter meetings in Steven Strasburg. Even those were only seven years for 30-year-old players. This is a guy who's going to be 30, and he got 11 years. It's crazy. It really is crazy. And like you said, there seems to be a shift in the mindset of front offices. But I think that the mindset is now an understanding that if you want to get the best, you have to do something that's a level above and beyond. And these teams are not thinking about the latter half of the deal. They're thinking about the front half. And if they can get the production that this player in this situation, Trey Turner, has been giving you know, the Dodgers, the Nationals, and whatnot the last couple of years in the first five years of this current deal, they're going to be okay with that. And with inflation and, you know, you could talk to their accountant team and all that stuff, I think they become less worried over time knowing all those sort of things. So while it would suck to have a dead contract that you're paying a guy $150 million for five years still, of course, even with inflation, that's not going to counteract it completely. But I think teams are willing to pay that price in order to win that World Series. Absolutely. And the other consideration is, you know, David Nebraska is going to be long gone in 11 years. <laughs> He's not going to still be the GM of Philly. He's not going to have to answer for this contract. I don't even know if the ownership's still going to be there. They probably will, but you don't know that. So, yeah, it's a very kind of short-minded approach and that's fine. I mean, yeah, you're never going to get these players if you're not willing to sacrifice that part of the future. And it's just the game that that is being played in the front offices right now. And this is kind of an aside, but as you were talking about like having to be willing to go above and beyond and, and spend a little more than you're comfortable for these players, the first team I think of is the Dodgers. Because they have made a brand out of not spending a dime more than their projections and their analytics warrant. And I'm really interested to see how Andrew Friedman, president of baseball ops for the Dodgers, reacts to this new changing market. Because that's served them well in the past. They've signed Freddie Freeman last year for a deal that at this point looks well below market value. Right now, if I'm Andrew Friedman, I'm thinking, man, I don't know if the market's going to come to me on any of these guys because they're flying off the board like hotcakes. Yeah, I know it was the winter meeting, so it was a little more action than usual. But still, these deals are way more than I'm comfortable with. And it's not like just one or two are like, oh, that's an overpay. That's an overpay. All of these deals pretty consistently down the board. It's like if you're looking at the projections that you know that we even came out with Jim Bowden uh, of the Athletic or plenty of other writers, the ESPN projections, the Baseball America projections, all this kind of stuff. All of these deals are way over those projections because this market is just that much more robust this year. And 
there's kind of been a line drawn in the sand. The Phillies were the first team to cross that line. Well, we knew the Mets were on that side of the line already, but they have Cohen, so that's a little different. But the Phillies were the first team to cross that line and say, we're willing to go into, you know, illogical contracts to get the players we want. And you will see over the course of the next three or four days, some teams followed them over there. And some teams said, eh, not for me. I'm staying on the logic side of the line. And we'll see where that got them. Yeah, and one of those teams that we know is going to stay on the logic side of the line is that of the Cleveland Guardians. They did, though, go out and make a move this winter meetings, and I think it's a pretty good one. They went out and got Josh Bell on a two-year, $33 million contract. That comes with an opt-out after the first year, so it could end up being a one-year pact if Bell goes off and decides to test the free agent market again next offseason, which I could very well see if he feels like he can get another two-year deal at similar or more AAV. This fills a direct hole for the Guardians. They needed a first baseman to be able to push Josh Naylor over to DH, or vice versa, they could run Naylor at first base and Josh Bell at DH. I'm sure both guys will get playing time at both. Good deal here for the Guardians, don't you think? Yeah, it's, I mean, again, a little more than I thought. I was projecting Bell, I think we had him in the more like three years, 33 range, maybe three years, 35 or 36. Um, but, you know, he gets paid, he gets two years, 33. He got an opt-out, so that's great. It's a really good deal for him, for sure. I didn't really know what to expect. He was a, kind of a hard player to evaluate coming off an up-and-down year. Um, started off great with the Nats, got traded, didn't do so well. Um, he's always been a streaky player, but yeah, good pickup for the guardians. He will definitely be an upgrade there. Um, as you said, Naylor can shift to DH a solid move, but again, kind of a bit of an overpay, even on a smallish deal like this, two years, 33 million. I don't think a lot of people thought he was going to get an AAV of 16 and a half million. It's almost qualifying offer level. No, I definitely think that's fair to say though. Oftentimes we will see a slightly higher AAV when less years come into play, so maybe that had something to do with it. Don't necessarily feel personally like this is a massive overpay, but I guess we'll kind of see about that in the long run here. Kind of moving on, let's talk about a team whose rotation is essentially completely new and has brought them from a state of who knows what the rotation is going to look like to this could be a top 10 rotation in baseball. The Texas Rangers. We knew about the DeGrom signing that had already become, that came what a few five, six days prior to the winter meetings. We knew Martin Perez or excuse me, Martin Perez decided to stay on that qualifying offer and that, that they had already traded for Jake Odorizzi from Atlanta. John Gray was already there the year prior. And then they went out and got Andrew Heaney. That's a really solid rotation when you look at it. Does it have some potential for some bust? Yeah, 100%. But could it boom? Also 100%. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we already talked about the DeGrom deal and the injury history there. Um, Heaney is not without his own injury history. He didn't clear 100 innings, I don't think, this year with the Dodgers. But that staff is going to strike out a lot of dudes. Um, DeGrom is obviously the best strikeout pitcher in the world right now. And Heaney is, 
he struck out about 13 for nine last year. So that's a really potent staff. Um, obviously, Odorizzi, Gray, Martin Perez, uh, more number three kind of starter options, although Perez pitched really well last year. But yeah, I mean, that's a solid, solid five right there. Obviously, you're not going to beat DeGrom at the top. Um, I think you're looking for a little bit more certainty. Uh, they'll probably add another back-end-ish guy. But um, depth aside, that's that's a pretty, pretty good group. Yeah, and if everything goes right with health and production, this could be a wild card team. And, you know, I think it's probably a little bit aggressive to project. Yeah, they're going to get that final wild card spot. But could they be in the running for most of the season? I could totally see that. It just depends on whether or not, obviously, health. But they can consistently produce like Perez did last year, like Heaney did last year. Can they get a little bit more out of John Gray? Can DeGrom stay healthy? A lot of question marks. But if those questions are answered, I kind of like their odds. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. And this was one of the deals that actually probably seemed fairly cheap, uh, at least to me. Two years, $25 million, uh, with an opt-out. So the same structure as Bell, but uh, way cheaper. And... Um, this one was interesting, not just because that just kind of seems cheap to me. Also, it was reported that Heaney had several three-year offers on the table and instead opted to go for a two-year pact with the Rangers. Yeah, it must have been because of the opt-out, in a mm-hmm. sense, betting on himself, that he would replicate his production last year and throw more innings, which right. you know, two years of good pitching plus showing that he can throw 150 innings that'll get him a pretty hefty contract next offseason so it's kind of a bet on himself but also a little bit more security to do so again the following year if injuries or something happens this coming year absolutely absolutely all right so at this point the market was uh really starting to heat up we were getting deals coming in uh seemed like every hour or so the next one very interesting Obviously, the Dodgers non-tendered Cody Bellinger. We talked about that earlier in the offseason. And there was some pretty serious bidding for his services. Um, he was projected to earn about, what was it, like 16 or $18 million in arbitration. And uh, so the Dodgers obviously non-tendered him. The bidding got all the way back up to that level. So the Chicago Cubs went out and signed Bellinger to a one-year $17.5 million deal. Were you surprised by the... Well, first of all, were you surprised by the landing spot? And second of all, were you surprised by the price? I wasn't surprised by the landing spot because they had been rumored for looking for that left-handed outfield bat and Bellinger was immediately connected to him once the non-tender happened. So, no, wasn't surprised there. The $17.5 million comes in at a little bit of a surprise, but I'll put it this way. The Dodgers... Excuse me. The Cubs have a lot of payroll flexibility, and they're also not trying to compete right now. So signing a guy for a little bit more in hopes that he maybe plays a lot better than he has been, and you get that MVP or even half of the MVP, Bellinger, this deal's worth it. So for them, I think they looked at it like, if he plays terrible, 
like he has been. We got a good defensive center fielder. We'll platoon him with Christopher Morell in center, and we'll say goodbye next year. But if he kind of returns to form, this is a steal and a half. We can flip him at the deadline, and we're looking at a really good return. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's the perfect deal for the Cubs because 17.5 million doesn't really mean anything to them right now. They're not even close to the luxury tax. They know they're not going to win the division this year. Um, they're just looking for pieces, as you said. And if Bellinger is a dude this year, that's just really solid for them. And if not, they eat the 17.5 million. You know, they're in Wrigleyville, they can afford it. Um, it's not that big of a deal. Um, okay. At this point, we're going to take a brief interlude for a moment in baseball Twitter history that happened this Wednesday, or actually this was Tuesday. So of course the looming specter, uh, throughout this winter meetings was Aaron judge, especially that DeGrom was off the board. Um, judge is obviously the huge story, whether the Yankees could retain him, the Giants were the other team that was reportedly, you know, really in the mix from the start. There were rumblings about the Mets, the Dodgers. Um, but, you know, really the question was, are the Yankees going to re-sign him? And pretty much the consensus was, yeah, probably. Um, and then things started to heat up on Tuesday. We had heard that the Yankees were around the $300 million range going into the winter meetings. That was where their offer was, about eight years, I think. And then reportedly on Tuesday, the Giants really ramped up their offer to about nine years and $360 million. And a couple hours after that, we got a tweet from John Heyman. Let me read you this tweet. Arson Judge appears headed to Giants. <laughs> now, of course, we all know that he did not go to the Giants, so... Not only was it a terrible misspelling, also a terrible overreaction. Uh, a minute later, he corrected it to Aaron, of course. And then probably six or seven minutes after that, he said, Giants say they have not heard on Aaron Judge. My apologies for jumping the gun. <laughs> and of course, Heyman gets absolutely dragged on Twitter. Uh, the most important news of the offseason. You might want to double check your sources. But man, that was just absolutely hilarious. <laughs> It was absolutely hilarious because, of course, it's going to be John Heyman. Of course, he's the guy who jumps the gun. He always continues to make himself look so stupid. And I've said this a million times. I'm still not sure how he's employed by MLB Network and all these massive news outlets. He definitely has sources, but my gosh, this guy is an idiot. And he proved it again, and he gets clowned on again, which... It's good because he deserves it for doing crap like this constantly. And the funny thing, too, like you said, not only did he end up going to New York and not staying in San Francisco, <laughs> he couldn't even spell his name right. And of course, it was arson judge. It wasn't some non-word in the English language. It was an actual word, which we all know what the word arson means. So it's just, yeah. Heyman is Heyman, and he will never change. Yeah, no, that was just uh, one of the funniest things. I was in the middle of studying for finals, and that was a great moment of hilarity that uh, brightened my day for sure. So um, we will get back to Judge later, 
because his sweepstakes have still not ended. Um, even though Heyman thinks he's headed to the Giants, we know he's not. Uh, however, in the meantime, the Giants get another slugging right-handed outfielder, uh, not quite on the caliber of Judge, but a solid player nonetheless. They sign Mitch Haniger, the uh, career-long Mariner, to a three-year, $43.5 million deal, and he will slot in in a corner outfield spot in San Francisco. And it's a thing they badly needed. We had talked about this in the NLS breakdown video for this offseason. If you haven't checked that video or that episode out, please go do so. They needed a lot. And just getting a judge or just getting a Correa would not really move too much of a needle for them. Maybe organizationally, sure, but not for next season. And this was a great start. Getting a guy like Mitch Haniger, though he has had injury history, to a three-year, $43.5 million contract. AAV is really nothing for a guy who has the potential to slug you 30 homers, 100 RBIs. He's done it before. I think it's a good deal for them. He kind of fits perfectly. We know he already likes the the West Coast being in Seattle. So he just kind of seemed like a giant. So it felt right. Yeah, not a hugely surprising one and not really one that seems like a massive contract. As you said, I'm a little worried about his home run hitting potential uh, going down at the spacious uh, home ballpark in, in Oracle, but I don't know. We'll see. Obviously, he's got some pretty huge raw power. Um, but now, a second interlude, uh, because now we're going to discuss the very first MLB draft lottery that happened right about at this point in the winter meetings on Tuesday night. And I didn't really know what to expect. MLB... Tried to make it a bit of a production. <laughs> I didn't really. I thought it was kind of awkward. Um, I'm sure they'll learn from it and make it better next year. But uh, apparently the process was really intense. There was um, an independent company obviously uh, took care of the lottery itself. The MLB wasn't going to trust it with any of its own people. And the teams would have probably, you know, cried out about collusion and stuff. But it was an independent company that did the actual drawing um, there was some ping pong balls in a, you know, popcorn popper looking thing. And there was, you know, it was a locked room. Each team had one representative in there. Cell phones were banned. They were in there for two hours doing who knows what. Came back out with the results and they revealed them on live TV. Um, and if you aren't familiar with it, there's six picks decided by the lottery. Uh, so... All 18 teams that missed the playoffs are a part of the lottery. So technically all 18 of those teams have a shot at the first overall pick. Um, They don't have a good shot. The Brewers, who were the 18th team, have a 0.2% chance of getting the first pick. Um, And spoiler alert, they didn't. But it's obviously a a method for disincentivizing tanking. Um, And first of all, my question to you, Logan, is... Are you a fan, and do you think it's going to achieve its purpose? I'm definitely a fan of it. It's a much better system than just doing it off of record from previous year. There is that aspect of, well, we can completely tank and still get the sixth pick, even though we're the worst team in baseball. There's a little bit of that. Baseball is less of a sport of draft picks in a lot of ways, unless there's a for sure fire guy like an Adley Rutschman out there. 
a lot of times you can get as much value in late rounds as you can in the first round. Not to say that there isn't any advantage to having higher overall picks, but I don't think it's going to achieve its purpose. They would have to do something more dramatic, is, I guess is what I'm trying to get at. But I definitely think it's a step in the right direction, and I definitely prefer it to the old system. Okay, and you know, one other thing to consider, it's not just the actual draft picks that change. It's also, probably almost as importantly, the bonus pool money. Last year, the Orioles had the first overall pick. They had a bonus pool of about $17 million. So that means they get they are allocated $17 million to spend uh, in order to try to sign all of their draftees from all 20 of the rounds. Whereas the Dodgers, who had the last pick in the draft, had a bonus pool of only $4 million. So, you know, $17 million for 20 dudes or $4 million for 20 dudes, obviously you're going to be a little bit limited in who you're going to be able to sign if you only got $4 million to spend. Uh, and the Dodgers also incurred some penalties for going over the luxury tax, so that number uh, won't be as low every year. But it's still a big gap from the top of the draft to the bottom, and I think the gap between first and second overall was $3 million. So, you know, it's it's a little bit more, you know, it's not just the pick position. That, that bonus pool money definitely has an effect as well. No, that's a very, very good point. Some of the few highlights from it were, one, the Twins got all the way up to pick number five. They were slotted in originally at 13th, so that was a huge bump for them. Um, Like you said, they're going to get a lot more bonus pool money as well as getting that fifth overall pick, which that's pretty significant. The worst team in baseball ended up getting the sixth overall pick, and that was the Oakland A's, so maybe that incentivizes them to make some big splashes this winter. And, you know, other than that, you know, good to see the, uh, what was it, the Pittsburgh Pirates get that first overall pick again. We'll see what they do with it. But, yeah, Pirates are on the clock. Yep. And uh, I'm sure we will cover the draft next year. Uh, All-Star Game festivities are in Seattle, and that's where the draft will be as well in mid-July. So we'll be covering that. Uh, It's pretty early to say right now. College season hasn't even started yet. So, We'll, we'll get you updated uh, as the draft approaches and where the Pirates might go with that first overall pick. But yeah, so I don't know. It was interesting. I liked it. Um, I think MLB can definitely do a better job production-wise. Uh, I don't know if you watched it on TV as well on MLB Network, but I didn't think they did a great job. But I'm sure they'll get better. Um, okay, back to free agent deals. Who's next? Who's next? Let's kind of group two guys together here. They signed similarly timed, and they also have very similar deals, though to two different clubs, both National League teams. That would be the likes of Taiwan Walker and Jamison Tyone. Walker is headed to Philadelphia on a four-year $72 million deal, and Tyone is headed to Chicago, and that is of the Cubs, on a four-year $68 million deal. Two very similar guys, not too surprising that they got fairly relatively similar deals. What do you think of these guys? Yeah, it's about where we thought they would end up. Neither of these guys are super high upside pitchers, but they've shown consistency. They're going to give you an ERA probably below four, around four-ish. You know, very solid mid-rotation starters. Tyone's a little younger. 
Um, but Taiwan Walker has a more recent track record. Obviously, Tyone missed uh, a couple of years with TJ surgery. Um, so a little bit of a riskier play there, but obviously the, the age kind of offsets that. So, you know, for the Phillies, their rotation is looking really good again. They've got Nolan Wheeler at the top, Walker and um, Ranger Suarez in the middle there as kind of three guys. And then the back end will probably be uh, Bailey Falter or top prospect Andrew Painter is what I've been hearing. Um, and a couple other guys have shots as well. Uh, but yeah, that Philly rotation is looking pretty good. As for the Cubs, they've got Stroman. Now they've got Tyone. We know Hendricks has been there. Interesting play for them. Um, obviously a play for the future. He will probably slot in as their two or three starter this year. They're probably hoping on a playoff team that he's their four or five starter. Uh, but it's a good move, good build uh, for the future. Yeah, and at the end of the day, both these guys are on their teams to give them innings. Cubs and Phillies obviously in different standpoints, but the Cubs could really use just innings. If you look at that starting rotation prior to having Tyone, there's a lot of question marks there. So this will provide solid, solid innings for the next three years. And same with Walker. They needed someone other than Bailey Falter to be their four. Will Walker pitch in the postseason? Potentially, though he's not someone that is going to be a scary fourth to throw out there but at the end of the day both these deals give both teams length in their rotation and we know that that is extremely important in a season that goes 162 games absolutely absolutely all right so let's get back to the elephant in the room Aaron Judge at this point his sweepstakes have really been heating up and we've had a third entrance into the running and that would be the host San Diego Padres, pretty much out of nowhere. Reportedly, so Judge was not in San Diego for the meetings at the beginning. He flew in on Tuesday, basically for the express purpose we learned of meeting with the Padres. And it doesn't look like the Padres ever formally extended an offer, but they were pretty upfront with him, basically saying, how much would it take to pry you away from the Yankees and you know reportedly informally they discussed the big 400 in terms of millions of dollars yeah that came in as a bombshell there is no thought process in any San Diego Padre fan that Aaron Judge was realistically on the table of course you love to think about those sort of things but beyond just the attempts to get Trey Turner Assuming you missed out on him, it did not feel like a situation where, well, we're just going to go now up our offer $10 more million a year to get Judge. That kind of felt like a unique situation. Clearly it was not, though they came in a little bit too late, it feels like, and it didn't seem like Judge wanted to go anywhere other than New York unless he had to take an offer that was just so significantly higher. And that's kind of what we ended up seeing here because we know the Giants were at the nine years 360 range and it sounds like the Yankees were at the eight years 320 range while the Padres came in at that 10 400 and judge basically told the Yankees if you give me that final year and that extra 40 million there's no way I'm leaving and they ponied up and did yeah and I mean everyone knows already 
said that this is a master negotiating job by Judge um, after obviously a brilliant season, really played his cards well. He made the Yankees nervous that he was going to leave, and that's what he had to do to get that extra, gosh, I mean, $146 million. You know, their extension offer, if you don't remember, in spring training to him was seven years, 213 and a half, which is, you know, like on its face, not that terrible of a deal if you're just evaluating the player specifically. It's like a $30 million AAV. But the problem is the judge is not just a player. He's the face of the biggest franchise in baseball, and he's going to need to be paid more like that. And so, first of all, he, he rejected the extension offer, bet on himself, had the best walk year in history, won the MVP, and then said, oh, you know, I might want to go over to San Francisco, got the Yankees to bite, got $360 million for nine years. Obviously, a $40 million AAV blows Mike Trout's record out of the water. His previous record was $35.5 million in average annual value. So, yeah, well played by him. The Padres, really weird. This is the second time in two days that they have outbid the competition and not gotten the player. We didn't really even talk about this, but with the Turner contract, the Padres reportedly offered $342 million to make Turner the highest paid shortstop in baseball. And he chose the Phillies $300 million offer, although it it pretty much came out that he was dead set on going to the East Coast. Right. And last kind of point here, the Yankees are now the first team ever with three players on $300 plus million contracts. That would obviously include Judge Stanton and Garrett Cole. So are the Yankees better? No, they're the same as last year. They haven't gotten better yet. We'll see how the rest of the offseason plays out for them, but they haven't really done anything to improve the team. They just made sure that their franchise guy didn't go anywhere else. Sticking in New York, though, the Mets made another move to sure up that rotation, getting Jose Quintana on a two-year, $26 million deal. Guy had a career year last year. They're paying him to give them some solid innings at that back half of the rotation. Solid deal. Could it blow up in their face? Sure, but does it matter if $13 million a year is dead weight for Steve Cohen? No. Yeah. And the first thing I saw when I, the first thing I thought when I saw this deal was, man, the Mets love old guys. Their rotation's got to have an average age of like 36. Only guy under 30 in there is David Peterson, and he's not really a lock to be in the rotation by opening day either. So Verlander, Scherzer, Quintana, Carrasco, all getting up there. But, you know, it's, again, the, the, the short-term play. Uh, Quintana deal only two years, so not too much risk of age-related regression, but, of course, a big risk with him of simply performance regression due to the fact that he really has not been that good for the last two, three, four years prior to 2022. Uh, so interesting to see if he can sustain that production. Um so now the big story as we're moving into Wednesday morning is the Red Sox and Xander Bogarts because, you know, obviously this is very secondary to the judge thing with the Yankees, but a similar position for the Red Sox. You really don't want to let your homegrown guy 
walk. He's been there 10 years. He's won two World Series titles with you. You know, a candidate for the C on his chest, for sure. The captain title for Bogarts. And by Wednesday morning, it was looking pretty good that they were going to re-sign him. It's, they, there was multiple reports that there was momentum between the two sides. The Red Sox had upped their offer. And in the meantime, Heimblum went out and signed Kenley Jansen to shore up that closures role. So the Red Sox were clearly you know, ready to be aggressive. It's a two-year, $32 million deal for Jansen. And we covered that bullpen in the AL East breakdown. At the very end, we had the Sox sign Chris Martin to a two-year deal. So now they get an established closer and really, you know, help improve that bullpen. But obviously their first priority was Bogarts. Yeah, the Kenley deal is fine. I mean, it, he's going to be good on that contract. Not really sure why the Red Sox feel so inclined to have this really good bullpen when they're clearly the fourth or fifth best team in that division and they're not making any efforts to jump that. Having a good bullpen is great, but you can only use that good bullpen if you're ahead, and it's going to be tough for them to be ahead too often if that rotation and that offense can not produce. So I like getting better bullpens, but not sure I think these are just the best moves in the world for the Red Sox. Definitely could have spent more time in other fields, and they have time still, but they're kind of running out of options. Yeah, so uh, let's stick with the Red Sox here. Skip over one more move just to kind of conclude this storyline here. So at this point, Bloom has signed Jansen. He's feeling good about Bogarts. Then he goes out and he signs from the NPB, Nippon Professional Baseball, uh, left fielder DH Masataka Yoshida. And this is a really interesting one because this signing... It's $90 million to the player, but there's also a posting fee because he was posted by his team, the Oryx Buffaloes, in the NPB. So the total cost comes out to about $105, $110 million. So that's obviously a very significant investment over five years. So at this point, you're thinking, okay, you know, John Henry signed a blank check. Red Sox are going for it big time. They're going to get Bogarts back in a minute and you know they're going to really look to to contend here and that was basically what most of the baseball world went into Wednesday night thinking and then around 9:30 Pacific time into the morning hours on the east coast it came out that The Padres have signed Xander Bogarts to a massive deal. 11 years, $280 Red Sox fans woke up in misery Thursday morning. Yeah, and as Padre fans, seeing Red Sox fans so sad makes us so happy. They don't deserve anything. The city of Boston doesn't deserve (laughs) anything. They have a million world championships in the last 10 years, so I am great with the fact that they are complaining. But yeah, what a contract. 11 years, $280 million for Xander. That is something when you really think about it. A 30-year-old shortstop. Um, is it an overpay? Probably in terms of the years. AAV, though, does come down to about $25 million, which is huge when you think about it. They 
they meaning the Padres, are able to save a lot of money in the next couple of years just by getting that AAV down. It obviously is an interesting fit for the Padres given the fact that they have a ton of shortstops already, but when you really think about it, it allows them to slide Hassan Kim over to second, Cronenworth over to first, and keep Tatis in the outfield. Presumably long-term, though, we'll see what happens over the next couple of years with certain opt-outs and whatnot, but as Padre fans, I know we're excited and we're really, really happy to have a hitter on the level of Xander Bogarts in our lineup. Yeah, absolutely. And just really quickly, I mean, that gives the Padres pretty inarguably the top big four in all of baseball with Bogarts now and then Machado, Soto, and Tatis already. Um, that's just pretty fearsome. But yeah, from the Red Sox perspective, absolutely brutal to lose your homegrown guy after 10 years of great production with your team. Um was going to be a top, I don't know, 10, 15 Red Sox of all time if he stayed there his whole career. More moves. Um, Wilson Contreras going to the Cardinals to fill that catcher void left by Yadier Molina. A five-year deal, uh, just under $90 million, I think it came out to. So uh, not really a shocker there. It was probably between the Cardinals and the Astros uh, for his services. I think I had predicted the Astros earlier. But a solid contract for the Redbirds, and I'm sure he will provide uh, some good production for them. Yeah, not a guy that I love, per se, going long-term with. Though, to get him, you're going to have to. Obviously, one of the better hitting catchers that we've seen in the last 10, 15 years. So, offensively, probably worth it. And if he kind of loses that ability to catch, I'm sure they'll find a spot for him at designated hitter. That won't be too much of an issue there. So filling a massive hole left by Yachty with the best available guy on the free agent market, at least. Yep. That's a good job done by the Cardinals, for sure, at least in the short term. That does kind of open up the, the trade market, though, a little bit more for the A's and the Blue Jays, two teams with catching surpluses to deal from. Cardinals were obviously a potential suitor. So now you're looking at the Astros, uh, you're looking at the Rays, even... Um, the Braves were mentioned earlier with Murphy, but doesn't look like that's going to happen anymore. Um, Guardians looking for catching upgrades as well. So uh, there's there's still some some uh, active catching markets going on, although not as much on free agency anymore with Contreras off the board. Lastly, we got to go back to New York, the Mets kind of wrapped up the winter meetings themselves by going out and getting two guys. They got Brandon Nimmo to return back to be their everyday center fielder for the next eight years on a $162 million deal. Again, seeing a deal with a longevity perspective from the club with a lower AAV than I'm sure a lot of people thought he could have gotten. And they also added on David Robertson on a one-year $10 million deal to that bullpen will probably be in the 7th or 8th inning for them. How you liking that last-minute push there by the, the Mets at the winter meetings? Yeah, this uh, pretty firmly cemented them as the biggest payroll of all time. At this point, they were hovering around $300 million, a little over it in the luxury tax department. Then you add bang, $20 million for Nimmo, bang, $10 million for Robertson. They're up over $330 million in the luxury tax department. And so for repeat offenders as they are, 
they're going over all four levels. So every dollar above 293, which is the fourth level, the quote unquote Steve Cohen level, gets taxed at 90%. So they're what, 40 million over that. That means they're taxed another 36 million just right there alone. That doesn't even cover the lower penalties uh, for the lower thresholds as well. But man, I mean, you know, money's no object in Queens. We're seeing it play out. We now have several teams, the Phillies, the Padres, the Yankees are well over the luxury tax line um, and into the second threshold now. So it's good for the game to see teams spending like this. I know the small market teams are, are hurting, you know, seeing all this money being spent, but it's it's good for the game when these owners step up and, and really dish out the money. As for the actual contracts themselves, Nimmo, eight years, $162 million. I think that's actually going to age pretty well. Um, he can slide into a corner as he ages. Uh, probably will only play center field for another two or three years of that contract. But, you know, 134 WRC+, plus, I think, for the last five years. Really solid hitter. Great table setter for that lineup. Um, and they really couldn't afford to see him go because of the other center field market. Uh, the other center field options on the market are really not great. Um, as for Robertson, solid reliever. Hopefully he can duplicate his report performance from this year. Um, didn't have a great stretch of years uh, leading up to 2022, but another guy uh, who bounced back this year, he'll be setting up for Edwin Diaz in that rotation, or in that bullpen, excuse me. Yeah, very, very well said. So I think that's going to about do it for this wrap-up episode on the winter meetings for us here thank you guys for spending some time with us and giving us a listen as the off season still has some big names out there we still have to wait to see whether correa goes to san francisco or back to minnesota are the yankees a surprise team that could get in there we'll see rodon big name out there obviously sanga is still available and a lot of guys who can still fill a lot of holes for some teams while the winter meetings may have been hectic, there are still a couple more months of fun before spring training and the World Baseball Classic kick off. So, like I said earlier, thank you guys so much, and we'll talk to you soon. See ya.